Welcome to When Pigs Fly. We're a podcast that's uncovering Cincinnati's rich business history dating back from the 1800s to today. We talk to companies to learn the ups and downs of entrepreneurship, what it takes to grow a successful business, and to simply prost to future innovation. I'm one of your co-hosts, Allie Martin. And I'm your other co-host, Patrick Bailey. And today, we will be talking with Chris Rose. He's the owner and founder of Artsman, which is a sports craftsman company, and he's going to be able to dive into exactly what that means, along with a bar and restaurant called Sinners and Saints. He's a man that I don't know how he has enough time to do what he does. He is an industrial designer. He's an entrepreneur. He is a father of six beautiful children, a lover of fine food and bourbon, and he truly is just a renaissance man all around. But Our main focus of this podcast is what he's been creating with Artsman. And Artsman, to give a little bit of a brief overview, is a sports craftsman company that is working specifically with the NBA and the NCAA to transform basketball courts into something bigger and better. So we're talking B2B, we're talking B2C of different products, of uh, bar tops and tabletops and plaques and... Um, pendants, you name it, this guy is creating it and taking all-star courts, taking NCAA uh, national championship courts. So we're talking Baylor, we're talking Kansas, we're talking UConn, we're talking UVA. The list goes on. He's worked with Xavier and UC, the Cleveland Cavaliers, and he has a, more importantly, a very unicorn court that we are going to get into, into this podcast that I think people will geek out over. And I think all those courts have a significant history piece. Uh, and so that's why we did yeah. not bring a history nugget today. The product, the product it itself. itself is mm-hmm. a history nugget. And so I'm super excited to learn more about how he does all that he does. Yeah. And so on that note, Ali, let's bring him in. Chris Rose, you are a bit of a renaissance man. You have crazy experiences. You are all around good hearted guy, a dad of six children, bless it. Uh, and you run two businesses. How do you find time? <clears throat> I'm not sure I do find time. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, everybody says, how do you do it? I'm like, am I doing it? Or am I just kind of <laughs> getting through sometimes? Yeah. You know, so like, mm. you know, I mean, we, you kind of have to, it's hard to say. You have to focus on like what's really important. You have to kind of weed out the distractions as much as possible. You know, um, you know, you have to find time for the things that are important. Like last night, I had to clear my schedule, and we had to go to a uh, my daughter's eighth grade musical, which oh. she was awesome and she rocked it. You know, so it was great. So okay, not to get too deep right off the bat, but we are. Um, what are your priorities in terms of obviously family, and then I guess business but from a business perspective how do you prioritize you know what's coming down you know the pipeline for you so so the scales of balance are always in flux right and so you always have to be very aware of it like uh, you have to be aware of like what's really important I mean obviously family is really important right and you know that's that's my number one mm. priority you know and you know you find yourself getting your you find yourself having to um, focus a lot on growth in your business and sometimes that takes away from your priority. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, and when you're an entrepreneur, it's, you know, those, it's really hard to um, keep that in balance at all times. You know, when, when people have a nine to five job, 
uh, it can be a little bit easier because they have their gates and they say, well, this is, these are my rules. This is what I'm sticking by. This is what I'm doing. And five o'clock every day, I'm shutting things off. And this is what I'm doing. When you run your own businesses, you, you can't always, as much as you want to, you can't always follow that same stuff. So let's dive into the businesses that you run, specifically Artsman, uh, because as I said earlier, I will do a disservice trying to explain what Artsman is. <laughs> uh, but it's, I, I, I love the fact that you guys love this business. So Artsman is a business that was created about um, six years ago. And it all started with this concept that we had. In, in Cincinnati, there's a, a company here called Robbins Sports Services. And Robbins uh, makes about 33% of all the basketball courts for Division One, Two, II, and Three uh, oh, colleges. Wow. And then about 34% of all the NBA courts in the United States. Perfect so, timing that we're having this conversation during the start March of March Madness. Madness. I know. Yeah, it's, it's kind, of, kind of fun. And then going into the NBA Finals, which are getting ready to kick off here in the, in the next month or so. And so we, you know, I've, I, I've done a lot of work um, being an industrial designer. I've done a lot of work for other sports teams in the past. And we, we had this idea just to kind of build man cave furniture uh, from not game use court, but from um, just from the same wood that is being supplied to uh, these teams. Uh, so about six years ago, uh, we approached uh, Robbins to just source wood from them. Uh, so we could build some man cave furniture and kind of see what would happen. So we had a meeting with them, and in that same uh, meeting, they said, "Well, hey, you know, have you ever done anything with game use court?" And I said, "Well, no, but you know, where where would we source that? How would we get our hands on it? How would that work?" And they said, "Well, we, you know, we know some people that uh, we make the courts for the teams." I said, "Okay, well, that's really interesting." Meeting went well, and then two weeks later, the <laughs> Cleveland Cavaliers won the NBA title. You're like, we and, need to pursue this now. Well, the funny thing is they called Robbins and they said, hey, will you chop up our court? Mm. And oh, wow. they're not geared up. They're not set to do that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I, I have another business called Aria Design that makes architectural products. And so we already had the, the shop, the studio, everything already set up to do this kind of work. And so we, uh, they called Robbins. Robbins called us. Uh, Within a week, we were sending them designs. Uh, we engaged in business. Um, we it was kind of funny. They shipped us the entire court down um, to incredible. Cincinnati, That's and cool. it, I've got this video footage. And they and paid it, for that shipping. They paid for the shipping. Yeah, we <laughs> set it up, and uh, we had two flatbed semis pick it up and come down to Cincinnati. We put it in a storage facility here in Cincinnati, and we were within 24 hours of cutting it up. Mm-hmm. And um, the new court that Dan Gilbert had ordered for the Cavaliers, um, he, uh, he there was a beloved uh, scene on there who had this, uh, the Cleveland skyline. Mm-hmm. And he, without talking to anybody, he took the skyline off. And the fans of Cleveland revolted. <gasps> and oh. yeah, it was, pretty, it was pretty amazing. So we, within 24 hours, we had to take the entire court ship it back to Cleveland. Did they pay and for they, that? They paid for that. Okay. Well, good. They did. <laughs> and they had about 36 to 48 hours to from our door to set up for their first game. Because they, the, they took the court that he had laid down and uh, they pulled it all back up again and they shipped it off to get sanded down and have 
the graphic of the skyline put back on the court. So that took a month. So it took a month off of our schedule. And then they got their court back, and then they shipped us the court. And the funny thing is, is that uh, that court was being shipped to us. Um, we, were, we had to coordinate the trucks right in the middle of the Republican National Convention coming in yep. to Cleveland. And then uh, there was like a, there was some uh, some Cleveland Cavalier or uh, Cleveland uh, Indians or I should say now Guardians Guardians, Guardians games right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> coming coming in and like please. no I do not so uh, anyway so we got the court back and we had to very we had to scramble to make about um, I'd say about ten thousand. 15,000, about 15,000 products in wow. about a, in about two month period to get ready for Christmas that year. Yeah. Cause to give people a, an idea as well, like you said, you have some of your staples and you will even pull and make little plaques of pieces of the court if they want to hang that on their wall. But it sounds like you also do custom items. We do. We do. So in, in, in the, in the Cleveland case, you know, we, being a sports fan, being a memorabilia collector that I am, you know, and, and having gone to some of those shows, I, I had somewhat of a pulse of what people would receive and what they would like. Mm-hmm. Not to say that we were 100% accurate on the first go-around. Um, and not to say that we knew exactly how to work with teams. I mean, we, we all have marketing backgrounds. And, you know, so we knew how to t- talk with You're her. sitting on a gold mine. Right. You know, and, and um, you know, we had to kind of interpret what Cleveland wanted. We had to work with them on their on their media exposure we had to work with them on writing some of the uh the the dialogue on how Mm -hmm. to engage because you know at this point nobody no fans have been conditioned to walk into an arena and say oh yeah i'm looking for that court piece yeah do you have it like they're like oh can i get that t-shirt or hoodie first of all right right you Mm -hmm. have to re you have to basically educate an entire audience that this is a thing you know well and i think this brings up a good point right so that cleveland court was your very first court but throughout time you've been able to collect other courts let's dive into some of those other relationships that you've been able to build and how you've been able to get there okay so so we so we uh we we parlayed the cleveland success and it was actually for our first go around it was a really good success we we generated a lot of revenue for both us and for the uh, the cleveland um uh youth foundation that they mm-hmm. all the proceeds went to and then um we we our next gig was with the 2017 uh, North Carolina National Championship Court. So coming right out of Christmas, we, we parlayed that into the NCAA. I worked really hard to build a relationship with the NCAA. And a guy there named Olin Arnold, who's, uh, who runs that division of the NCAA and their uh, sports license management division. How did you and get connected with him initially? So I went to every trade show. Um, that you can imagine. You harassed I, him, is what you're saying. I did. <laughs> and uh, so, stalker you know, alert. I, I stalker alert. Stalker alert. So uh, I do. I do a lot of research um, on my own. I just I'm constantly doing research. I'm constantly finding out who the players are, who the people are, and and then it's really you know. Uh, and then my goal is to develop to the best of my ability authentic relationships with these people, and and. And, uh, and so by doing that and, you know, kind of sharing what your intentions are and really what your true capabilities are, being honest, you know, like mm, is, yeah. is a really good part of it. 
you know, you can always have a good salesmanship behind it, but you have to back it up with to produce to produce and genuine intent. You're not trying yeah. to, mm. you know, you're not trying to be shady. You're not trying to do anything because at the end of the day, you're putting energy into a piece, whatever this piece is, that its own, its true intention is to tell a story. Mm. You know, so when somebody picks it up and they feel it, they feel the energy, they feel what this is. And that piece just reminds them of all the great memories that they had surrounding that whole thing. And that's yeah. really, it's that's experiential. our goal. It's mm-hmm. experiential, yeah. Because I think it's interesting. You're you're talking about creating something physical. So the production element is such a big part of this. But you're not automating any of it because you're also working with very valuable items. So you want to take care of it. So how do you find that balance of being productive and being efficient and ending up with a product that you're really happy with and that the customers are going to be happy with? Uh, well, it's, it's always a work in progress. So, I mean, some... <laughs> Some processes are not automated. I mean, every every piece we make has a hand on it, right? Yeah. It has a human hand on it. And you always have to be very careful of how you – we, we talk about these pieces as artifacts, mm-hmm. you know, and we curate the collection like a museum piece, mm-hmm. you know, because it's, uh, it's very important that you communicate that with people. And so um, the, the experience that we have is that um, – the one thing that's interesting about the Courtwood, and I'll get back to your answer in a second. The yeah. one thing that's really interesting about the Courtwood is that in all of major sports that are out there, the basketball court is the one material that is consistent through every game. So mm-hmm. the fights, the falls, the, uh, the slam dunks, the three-pointers, the jumpers, the, mm-hmm. the free throws, the, the buzzer beaters, all that stuff happens on one court. It, it, but it, it encompasses all these things. Like mm-hmm. we've we've found, I mean, there's shoe prints from finals. Uh, there's oh, blood. Cool. We found blood on the on, on the courts. Crime scene. Um, yeah. <laughs> you, it, like, do you clean that off? Do you send it? <laughs> like, it's this. DNA. Like, you know, it's like, you know, we there's we're. I just got this series of emails back from the the New York Nets, and we're sending them a piece for their hang up on their wall in their yeah. offices. And he's like, oh, can you refinish the, the floor for us? I'm like, we don't do that. I'm like, that's that goes against our core belief. Yeah, if anything, you, you know, want to rust it up a little bit. Yeah, this yeah. Cur- curation <laughs> process. And I kind of right. want to dive in on that curation process. Are you, like, doing, like, historical research about what has happened on these courts, like, in these years, and being like, I want that court from that year, and you're reaching out to these organizations or to the NCAA or to the NBA and be like, can we chop up this court? <laughs> and we'll, we'll, we'll pay for it. So, yes. Uh, yes on all that. Um, we're actually um, actively trying to pursue Mike Krzyzewski's uh, final court that he retired on. What normally happens to a court if someone doesn't take it like yourself and mm. flip it, but then also are they just giving you the court as a donation or are you investing in it on the forefront? So there's permanent courts that get put down and they're there for years. College mm. courts, um, some college courts can be there for 60, 70, 80, 90 years. We just pulled a court uh, oh. from Xavier Schmidt Fieldhouse that yeah. was laid, you know, um, 70 years ago. It looks and we, old. And it looks old. It's old, you know, and, uh, and they'll like, sometimes they'll layer up. We, we have a, a court we're getting from West Virginia that um, has three layers on top of it. And mm-hmm. then the bottom layer is from 
1918. The next layer is from the Jerry West court that he played on, which they didn't even know they had. And then the court on top of it is like a kind of like a oh, nondescript wow. court. So like hmm. you, it's it's like it's part archaeology, and sometimes these people don't know what they have. But there's <laughs> permanent courts, and which are laid down tongue and groove all the way across. And then there's uh, a lot of arenas, and most M- every NBA team has what's called portable courts, and they're mm-hmm. like um, four by eight sections. Because I imagine a lot of those arenas get turned into something else. Yeah, they'll pull the court up mm-hmm. uh, twice a week for concerts, for hockey games, yep. for whatever, and so they don't want to damage it, so they stack it up and they lay it back down again, like brickwork. And uh, it's uh, it's finger crushing uh, mm-hmm. for the people who do that stuff. But um, so anyway, and then we we take those cords when they come in, and they're all numbered, and we and the curation part starts in the field. Like if they cut them up, I work with the teams to show the map of where they are and I help them designate things and then they number them and they mark them so we know exactly what we're getting and what stacks and where they are. So we know where the, the coach sat, we know where the, the foul line is on the left side versus the right side. You know, and, and then any kind of key moments that happen in the history of that court. You know, and then we have um then we on the portable courts, you know, as we if we take a whole court in, like the uh, NCAA National Championship Court. That's a huge court. They're the biggest yeah. courts that are made. Yeah. They're 10,000 square feet. Holy they're, man. Right. They're about 2,500 square feet larger than a normal portable or an NBA court because they have that huge apron that goes around where all the media sits. A lot of real estate. A lot of real estate, you know, and that you can't, <laughs> sometimes you can't use. So we, um, we kind of cut it up like a side of beef. You know, like we take select cuts, like your fillets are like a little That's bit awesome. more pricey. That's a good way to think of it. It is, you know, and and, uh, and usually when I say that to clients, they're like, "Oh, I get Point that." Point me to the fillet, cool. please. Yes, uh, let's uh, cut the fillets first. It's so like tasty. Medium rare. I like it. Mm. Yes, well, sir, that would be right over here. Uh, Should be at the three-point line. <laughs> but so, like to answer Patrick, to answer your question, like how that kind of dives into it. So, okay, so. Let's talk about a unicorn we have. Uh, so we have a unicorn um, of a court. And this unicorn of a court is, and this is very rare, like uh, most NBA courts, um, it's they're prescribed. So the rules of the NBA are every five years they have to get refinished and repainted regardless. Oh, wow. And there's typically about with that tongue and groove when they sand them, every time they sand them, you get a little bit t- closer to that tongue and then you only get about three, maybe four sandings out of a court before you get too close to the tongue, then it mm. pops. And then if a wood pops, player comes across it, it pops out when they're playing, they can get seriously injured. We saw that in the NCAA tournament a couple years ago where yeah. a piece of wood popped. And, and it serious injury. Woo. Yeah, it, it stabbed the guy. I mean, he, yeah. he he was taken out. So, And that didn't have to do with sanding. That was just a malfunction. But, uh, but the more you chip away, then you have to get rid of the court. Right, have they have a they have a life tour, yeah. And NBA is going through. I mean, Shelf. everybody everybody's got all these crazy graphics now. They're sanding and refinishing all the time. They're having like so we're seeing this like explosion. It becomes a competition a little bit too for it teams. Does. Who's got yeah. the swaggiest court? I don't. That's right. not a real word, but it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, um, like you have Oregon's court. Like that's a court I would never want to play on. That. It's so distracting. It's horrible to watch. It's like but watching. But you know now you need to get it. <laughs> to get rid of it forever. No more trees. No more trees. Burn it. 
<laughs> so courts do have a shelf life, and in the NBA, uh, they last 10 years, right? Uh, and you can get a special exemption from the NBA to get, if it has life in it, to go another two years, mm. um, if for whatever reason that is. Sure you and have that's, to prove that. You do, yeah. And, and like, it's, it's, it's rare that teams actually ask for that exemption mm. because they're owned by municipalities or the arenas mm. or the teams or whichever it is. In this particular case, the court I'm talking about is the Los Angeles Lakers court that uh, was laid down in 2000 when uh, the Lakers moved from the Forum to the Staples Center. Mm-hmm. And, and it just so happens that Unreal. the first three years of that arena, they won the three-peat. So uh, they won three NBA titles in a row. What? How did, how did this come about? People didn't really see a value to these courts. Like, they they would have so much life left in them. And, you know, uh, teams would work with their manufacturer, their dealer, to take the court away. They'd sell it to, like, a, a they'd resand it if there was anything left in it. Mm-hmm. They'd sell it for, like, $30,000 maybe and uh, paint uh, Juco school or, like, a Division three school. Or like yeah. in a lot of cases mm. now, WNBA teams get the hand-me-downs. So we, we own, we have this court. The Lakers sent it to us. And and you have the whole court. This isn't we have the just whole, a we have the whole part court. of the court. Wow. Yeah, this court lasted from 2000 till 2012. So they did get a two-year exemption on it. But what makes it special is that for multiple reasons, it was five NBA championships on this court. Seven were played on the court. Phil Jackson became the all-time winningest coach in this court. Uh, Shaq was the MVP of the first three uh, titles. Um, uh, Kobe Bryant was the MVP of the last two titles that they won, oh, yeah. and the and Kobe Bryant was he won all five of his NBA titles on this court. And so we received the court from the Lakers um, about six to eight months before Kobe had tragically died. And you know we had a whole program set up we were going to do, and then we uh, you know we. Did not want. We had canceled it. We we paused it because we didn't want to come across as capitalizing on his death, which was not our intention. Yeah. And so we had to pivot and say, all right, well, how can we benefit some of these charities? What can we do? And so we just took a long pause. And mm-hmm. and I'm actually really grateful. I'm really happy we did because I think we can do more good. Yeah. Having paused uh, for like the Mamba Foundation for the uh, Lakers Youth Foundation uh, yeah. that we would have been able to do before. And we have to be very, very careful when we're, when we're trying to tell unique stories about we only have so much real estate that we can, that we can uh, cut up and you know, whether or not a key shot moment happened in any one of those series or throughout the history of that court, you know, uh, are they overlapping? Do they, um, how do we define which is more important if we can only get one moment out of that thing? You know, Kobe's last shot that happened on that court, I know, was a free throw, you know? And so, like, I know where that is, you know, understanding, like, where the pivotal moments in um, the series, uh, series one, two, and three happened in the beginning part of that thing. There's stories behind that. And so, like, kind of getting into it, I've got the research that I do on that basketball court right now is probably... um, about 400 pages of research and statistics and video that I have to watch. And like, and so like you, like uh, you take still frames, you match it out with stories and like, you know, and and then you have to go through, um, you know, 
you have to go through all the doc, you have to read all the different sports writers and like make sure that that's actually accurate. And, and then, then yeah, and then in this case, we're also working with the archivist from the historian from the Lakers to make sure that that's accurate as well. I give you guys credit for taking that pause because that really allows you to strategize again. Um, but what you also just said is that you're very involved with giving back. Was this kind of your initial idea when you were creating Artsmen that you wanted to give back no matter what? And how are you incorporating that? I've always believed in charities. I, mm. I think that charities uh, serve a very, very good purpose in the communities. That, you know, and, and all these teams have are associated with charities. Most of them um, support youth foundations in education. Mm. And so I think that this is a, a really cool tool to be able to um, uh, to really inspire children, inspire kids, and, and, and really benefit them. So mm-hmm. if part of the proceeds can, um, can pad the accounts of these people so they can do food drives, so they can do uh, clothing drives, whatever, I mean, I think it's really, it's, uh, it's great. I'm actually doing a pilot program at my kids' school right now. Um, where I'm giving them a bunch of little tiny blocks of each of these teams, and I want I'm working with the teachers to see um, if kids will if kids do something an exceptional behavior inside of that that classroom, you know, then they can they they can be gifted not gifted they can earn a little tiny block. And all these kids today are like such basketball. Yeah, I was gonna say, do they understand the significance of what you're giving them? They do well, they do. And, and it's and it's and they have to earn it. So like they yeah. really have to earn it. So like, oh my God, this is a piece of the little kind of the tiny court that Kobe won all five NBA titles on. Well, you have to do something exceptional in your community to achieve that. So I'm, I want to see what the metrics come back at. I want to see because this is a program that I'd like to do in all these cities when we do a program. So like the uh, the boosters of all these schools can buy can put money in, buy the program, donate to the school. And then like, cause I think there's like kids, um, kids really excelling at grades at, mm-hmm. um, at kindness, uh, mm-hmm. extreme forms of kindness can really help mm-hmm. lift. So well, we'll see. I mean, it's a small yeah. program, but you know, and bringing it, it the might. element of sports into it, I think is really important. I think sports can teach kids a lot at a very young age from sportsmanship to perseverance, to mental strength, all of that. Exactly. So are you managing this business? Are you very hands-on? Like, are you like, did you find a team to really kind of hand things off to while you are, you know, having your own bar and restaurant and obviously uh, your philanthropic, I can't even say it, philanthropic, there we go, that's the word, philanthropic efforts. Um, You know, where are you spending most of your time? Uh, Well, it's all, it's all works in progress. (laughs) I, uh, I spend my time not sleeping. No, it's, uh, um, I do have a good team behind me and, you know, we're always growing and we're trying to, we're going through a pretty massive growth period right now. So, you know, we've, we just recently have been, um, we're working on exclusivity with the uh, NBA on, a, um, a very large multi-year license deal to be able to expand this. And so we've gone from three or four NBA teams this year to now what looks like by the end of the year will be like 12 NBA teams. And this is wow. a major program for the NBA to create some of these initiatives. So we're, we've are we actually been tasked with writing the program, 
being a guardian of the program, being stewards of the program. And then from the trickle down theory of like, you know, from the top and everybody kind of following suit, you know, the NCAA kind of will follow suit with this as well. The, mm. the offerings between the NCAA and the NBA are relatively the same, you know, but in the, the mechanisms for making that happen are relatively the same, you know, so you have your decision makers where most universities are nonprofits just by nature of their business uh, decree. Like uh, they, um, you know, you have donors, you have uh, alumni, you have fan mm -hmm. support bases there. You know, the same thing kind of applies to the NBA, where it's more obviously profit driven. You know, um, you have to show a good return on all aspects of this thing. You have to show a good return for uh, the teams, the clients. You know, a lot of these teams are hoping that a program like this will help pay for or upgrade or cut the cost in a new basketball court. Mm. You know, so in um, the program we just did with the Milwaukee Bucks, the current NBA champion, um, we were able to create a program for them and cut up their floor into about 17,000 pieces, just the first phase of it. Uh, and they were able to buy a brand new court with, with the proceeds from the sale of, that, of those items that we did for them within the first three months. Um, it sounds like there's kind of just more similarities in the processes, which makes it easy, pretty easy to manage. Who else is helping you out like, to make so, this a reality? So, like, I work extremely closely with, uh, so the NBA has an incubator unit uh, called the NBA Lab, and mm. um, I work very closely with uh, all the members of that, um, that group, and one person in particular, his name is Eric Perugini, and him and I have become very tight. We talk every day, two or three times a day, actually, cool. and, uh, and him and I are very, uh, we complement our skill sets very, very well. You know, we both see the creative side. We both see the business side, and uh, Eric is an insider. He comes from the NBA, and mm. so he worked at the NBA for a long time. He worked at the Nets for a long time. He understands this, and he worked in private equity uh, mm. for uh, for a while. So, like he in startups, so he gets the entrepreneurial side. He gets the you know the NBA could be and some of those organizations they could be sometimes tough waters to navigate. No, the one thing I was I was most surprised about is I didn't expect all the people that work for the NBA teams to be so nice. Uh, you're bringing up such a great point that I want to hit on because you're in an interesting position where you're a craftsman, you're a creator, but you're a businessman. It's the left brain, it's the right brain. But you see an opportunity working with an organization like the NBA, which is massive, yeah. like you said. Right. There's a lot yeah. of people involved. There's a lot of money. What advice do you have to give to someone who might be in a starting position like yourself who knows that they have a passion for a specific organization or industry but doesn't even know how to get in one thing i would say is uh one be do some soul searching and be very very realistic about your own capabilities and what you can and can't do mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. um uh fake it till you make it does it not necessarily apply in everybody's case because you can't commit to something that you don't want to fully be dedicating your time to right Exactly right. So, like, if you're going to engage a large group like the NBA, uh, NCAA, Major League Baseball, NFL, any of these guys, like, uh, you better have your act together. You better know what you can do. And, like, mm -hmm. and be honest with people. Like, you know, mm -hmm. you know, if you have a good idea, start small. You know, learn how to crawl before you run. You Like, mm -hmm. uh, don't overpromise and underdeliver because they will not accept that. Like, they're, they're, they're the nicest people in the world. Because then they won't look at you again. They won't look at you. You're out. You're done. And that's kind of the purpose behind the MBA lab to help people who need some help. 
and incubate their businesses. Now, then when you got the first court with Cleveland, did you know that you were ready to take this on? No. no. I mean, we, we saw something that was pretty interesting. And, you know, and, and uh, I've started many businesses over my, my years, uh, sold so some. So you believed in yourself as an entrepreneur, though? I did. So, like, yeah. I, I did. So I, I, you know, you and I've said this before, like, uh, you like, you're, if you have if you have confidence in being an explorer and and knowing all the all the how to survive in exploring mm-hmm. and how to rely on your on your on your on your intuition mm-hmm. and uh, then you can survive it you can navigate those those rough periods ahead it is and, and really just having the confidence you know sometimes there's bad days sometimes you you mm-hmm. come you you at the end of the day you're like how in the hell am i going to get through this week how the hell am i going to get through this day yeah like uh and and it's every day i wake up um thinking of the day as a rubik's cube and how am i going to solve this day but you have to enjoy doing that i do i do i I love it i love i mean i'm not really great at rubik's cubes but i love solving things (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but you, so what I think is interesting is you were talking about how learn how to crawl before you learn how to run. You kind of ran before you crawled. Yes, but that's where I think it's interesting. You have this entrepreneurial right. spirit, which you knew you were successful at before, but you also didn't fully understand what this vision of artsmen was going to become because maybe this we opportunity was just presented to you. So how did you find that balance of, hey, here's a great opportunity I know we can do it, but we really aren't sure how we're going to get it done. Well, in all in all fairness, like uh, in all fairness, like uh, it's like any business, it's a constant it's a constant state of refinement. You mm-hmm. know, like we're still trying to find our our balance. Like uh, mm-hmm. you know, and and we've we've made just about everything you could possibly make out of a basketball court, I think. But I, I know there's more <laughs> out there. We've done we've created Challenges. fine art. Right, challenge accepted. We've uh, we've created fine art. Uh, we've done installations in arenas. We've done installations in office buildings. Uh, we've created bars and restaurants, yeah. uh, hospitality experiences. Um, we've done giveaways at arenas. Uh, we've uh, uh, we've made B two B and B two C. B two B and B two C is absolutely the biggest part of it. Like uh, corporate sponsorship is a huge part. Mm-hmm. Um, we've done uh, sweet holder uh, retention. We have a sweet holder retention program. So, like, you know, teams will come to us. We'll put together a whole gifting program to people who are trying to renew their season tickets. Like, uh, cool. we did a whole um, health and wellness um, season ticket holder package for the uh, the Nets uh, when COVID hit, yeah. and sent them a whole gift uh, gift box with a piece of wood and a hoodie and a thermometer oh, cool. and hand sanitizer. And they again, they they had really just some amazing people like it's amazing mm. just how normal and wonderful some of these people, people are forget these about teams. <laughs> you know like they're just yeah exactly what's been like besides obviously them being so nice being one of the biggest surprises but what's been like i guess the biggest surprise or challenge that you have faced on this journey of building out your company 
getting into my kids' soccer practice on time. No, yeah. no but I think that's, I think that's, that is a really good point. I think sometimes entrepreneurs do struggle with that balancing nature of personal and professional life. But sometimes, you know, it's just life and you just got to figure it out. Yeah, it, it, you, you do. And like, uh, I mean, not to layer on like this, I, I enjoy coaching soccer. I really do. That reinvigorates mm. me. Like it's it's important, but I guess the biggest surprise on the business side um, was the reactions that you get from people when your message comes across and you program the piece correctly and you put it out there. And we we made this uh, mosaic out of the Lakers court. Um, it's a ten by ten mosaic, and it's made of sixty five hundred pieces of Shaq's face and we we were hired by uh, the NBA and MGM Grand uh, mm. to take it out to the summer games uh, a couple years ago and uh, Shaq came and he signed it and it was really cool and uh, got to speak to him and give him some pieces of his court and uh, you know and and the, some of the fans the Lakers fans are like the biggest it's the biggest uh, audience in NBA and yeah. uh, you know I had guys with tattoos like all over them who had yeah. Lakers jerseys on and I give them a piece and some at first people thought I, I'd cut a bunch of extra pieces up and we were just going to give them away to certain people you know and and uh and this some of these guys like so grateful they, they'd start you. crying like mm-hmm. I had this one I had this one guy tattoos all over him you know just you know he like on the street he'd look like we'd be like one of the toughest guys in the world yeah. he thought I was trying to sell him something at first and this is one of tons of stories like this. And he yeah. goes, and it finally I go, no, 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 hey, 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 I'm just, and I had to chase him down. And I like, because I knew he was like a super fan. And he goes, I don't want, I don't want what you're selling. I go, hey, I'm, not selling. I'm not selling anything. Hmm. I'm just trying to give you this piece. This is a piece of, you see that thing over there? That's made from the Lakers court from this time period. And Kobe hadn't died yet. So, hmm. but he was still like, uh, and, he, and he goes, you, what do you mean? You're you're giving me this? Aww. I said, I said, yeah. yeah. I said this is for you. I say, I just as being a Lakers fan, he goes, he just broke down. He just broke Aww. down. It was like well, it was I, like uh, it, goes it was really it was really it was really powerful. The story. They're holding a piece of history, right? And yeah, you've had the chance to evolve what you've been doing with these physical courts like that's the foundation when you think about it it's a piece of wood but history is. is played on it you've been able to produce like some pieces for b2b b2c but what i think is also interesting is you're moving into the nft space how do you start you know how do you actually execute this how do you get this on the web and are people going to find it just as valuable so there's a lot of discussions in place right now mm-hmm. as to NFTs and like what they can and can't do. There's a lot of people that um, do it well, and there's a lot of people that don't do it well. And I'm not going to claim to be an expert in NFTs because mm-hmm. I'm not, but we do work with some people who are. You know, before you mint the NFT, before you do things, you have to make sure that your uh, the process is right. You're it's actually you're you're in the right system, right? Mm-hmm. So we're we're doing so for us. We're discovering new things that actually kind of help and and aid the NFT. So we're working with a company called Brand Comply. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brand Comply is a company that created the uh, the micro um, technology uh, that's in the hundred dollar bill that oh. that that creates. Uh, so they they. 
they created that uh, micro hologram that yeah, like the, the strip to, to prove that it's authentic. Bill. Correct. Yep. And so they've been doing that. They've been mastering, and that is an uncounterfeitable uh, bill, right? Mm -hmm. And so they've taken the same technology and they're putting it into holograms now. That so we have the NBA uh, hologram that we put on it. But now we're going to have an extra hologram that gives it an extra level of certification that also has a QR code on the back of it, which takes you to, so we can register that one piece. And this piece. is the physical piece of wood. This is the physical piece of wood. Okay. So we're trying to, we're trying to, we're, we're, we're working with the NFTs to, cause there's a lot of like, uh, there's a lot of distrust in the community. Well, you're bringing up, people don't want a picture of Microsoft Paint of a penguin the NFT space, I imagine, is going to be for utility purposes. I'm going to wash that thought down with some yeah. nice coffee. <laughs> for utility purposes to show, you know, a certificate of authenticity. That if they're getting this piece of the Lakers court, they want to know that this is legitimate. And you can't change that, too. And that's where like the NFT comes in. always going to be a permanent record. So mm, that's, that's the super smart. Right. And so, like... Uh, so, um, yeah, so attaching NFTs and to uh, unique products or unique lines of products can really, really differentiate these products in, in, a, in a massive way. You know, when we take a piece of artwork, so we, I had a friend of mine who's a very, very good artist in Asheville, North Carolina, and his name's Michael Valer, and he is super talented. And I gave him some court panels and like, uh, um, there's a four by eight court panel from the Lakers where the corner piece is, um, uh, it's got a uh, part of the three point line. And he took four deceased players from the Lakers and he created this whole uh, painting um, around this piece. And, and so it's uh, George Mikan, Jim Pollard, uh, Wilt Chamberlain and Kobe Bryant playing a game of basketball. And oh, he wow. goes, he goes, his, his inspiration was like, uh, uh, was very unique and and uh, we documented the whole thing and one of the guys who's minting the NFTs around this painting there's 16 unique NFTs associated with this painting and uh, it's unreal so, I've seen it myself that, oh yeah, yeah so like it, oh my god incredible and his his story and like uh, the videotape behind it and how we're approaching it was very interesting you know and uh, so we're minting different aspects of that for mm. for him. And then part of the proceeds are going to go to the Mama Foundation, all that stuff. Like that's kind of where it ties in. That's where it's fun. But you know, his when he was explaining this to me, and he and I was watching his video, and he's like, he goes, it's like it's just this uh, this experience where you're not supposed to be there, and he's like, it's kind of like this uh, this um, um, field of dreams experience, right? Mm -hmm. mm. And so like uh, so you're. So part of the NFT experience from an aerial is like, perspective. From an aerial, like you're in the Raptors, you're not supposed to be there. Yeah. You know, and so like part of what we can mint and what we can do is is sharing some of those experiences, the video, the imagery, the piece itself. Yeah, so you know, will someone get the physical piece? Someone will like get the, the physical whole thing? piece. Yes. Wow. So we're going to we're going to auction that off uh likely through a company called Heritage Auctions, which doesn't There'll be si there will be 16 different NFTs out of it. So how do you do that? If someone's getting the full physical piece, what are the other fifteen? You know, I don't have the list in front of me, but if I did, I could, I could probably, I could name them off for you. Uh, they're, they're, it's a long list of different aspects. They might not all get minted, um, but we, but are they separate from the big final piece? 
They are. Uh, okay. One is one is attached to the actual piece itself. Correct me if I'm wrong. It sounds like one person gets the gets bids on the big picture. They win it, but then you also have these other fifteen, which also has a one NFT yes. attached to it, and then the mm-hmm. other fifteen NFTs people can like buy into it as well. But Correct. they're not but getting they the big the picture. They're piece. just getting us. They're getting a smaller right. portion. Yeah, there's a there's a company called. Um, just invested in it. They're invested in it, right? There's Got a it. there's a there's a company called Masterworks, which comes from yep. uh, UPenn, and they do a really good job. And so I've been working with them uh, to kind of figure out um, how we can uh, turn some of these art pieces. We, you know, uh, uh, some of the guys at um, NBA Lab, they did this whole program with Dwayne Wade, where he came in on the All Star Court from 2011, and he mm. uh, he has goggles on, and and he. Uh, Took a basketball, dipped it in paint, and dribbled it all over the place, and then we cut out those pieces. It was be- it was That's awesome. Yeah, and then you know him and his wife, all the proceeds for that they went it went to their charity, mm-hmm. you know, and so it was it was kind of fun. So you can do some crazy stuff. Like there was no NFTs. That was that was pre NFT, but um, yeah. You have all these businesses, and you're doing a lot, and you have a bar and restaurant. Why did you decide to go into, I guess, like a physical space, uh, and especially in the restaurant and food and drink industry? Yeah. So, so the so the reason for doing that, like I've I've spent um, years uh, in the past, like designing spaces and designing experiences and hospitality experiences, and so, um, you know, I I wasn't afraid of doing it. I I knew how to do it, and the one thing I wanted to merge, I wanted to give artsmen a vehicle to uh to all the tables in the bar are made out of game use basketball courts and championship cool. basketball courts and so what I, I wanted people to come in and and hear music have conversation exchange on this eat experience it because the one thing that the nba and basketball co- culture does better than any other sport out there is they they do a great job of merging uh fashion music um, everything it's together. It's a lifestyle. It is a lifestyle. So I wanted to kind of bring, uh, put that into a space where people could come and they could enjoy it. They could interact with it. They could, you know, and it's, it's so funny because now we're working with a division of the NBA called NBA Attractions and they're, they're piloting their first restaurant in Toronto called mm-hmm. NBA Courtside. So yeah, that gentleman and I are now working together uh, to create that experience. He's, he's got it all pretty much figured out. And the NBA is very heavily involved in it, but um, we get along very well, and, and uh, I'm helping consult on his tables and the whole thing. We're probably going to end up making his tables for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then he wants to expand into the United States, and so like we're going to help because I'm like, well, I'm like, it's funny because I kind of we had the same idea two years ago. We did it, and I've already been talking to other teams about doing this. So he's like, well, let's. Let's talk. Well, it's kind of like you have a happen. showroom for your pieces that people can go to, but it's a showroom with right. an experience that they can it's actually experience your pe- works of art. Maybe, uh, who right. knows, they can go there and scan a QR code and buy an NFT from the wall uh, <laughs> right. while they're there. Yeah, well, the it's kind of like, it was kind of fun too, because we called it, we call the place Sinners and Saints, and it's a, it's a great place, you know, and, and, uh, and the name behind it was, it was like kind of, the inspiration was like uh, uh, Jekyll and Hyde, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the whole thing behind that in every man there's good and evil. 
each person decides who they are, you mm-hmm. know, at the, at the very end. And so, like, we tell those stories. We try to tell those stories through sports and achievement, you know, and like, uh, and so I, you know, it's, I, we haven't fully developed the concept just because we're so busy all the time. <laughs> like, there's a lot of like missing pieces on the wall that I'd like to fill. But, uh, um, but it's, that's the intention behind it. And that's why we did it. So, my last question is from all your experiences, what is one piece of advice that you could give our listeners who are looking to start their own business or have all these creative business ideas like you do? You know, make sure you know what you're getting yourself into. I mean, really mm-hmm. make sure you know what you're getting yourself into because when you, whether or not you have another job and that's paying the bills, uh, while you pursue another dream, you know, um, it's going to double the amount of time that you have to do. Uh, just don't lose track of what's really important in your life. Always stay humble. Um, never lie to anybody, you know, cause that will come back and that will haunt you, you know, um, you know, uh, just be honest about your capabilities, what you can do. I mean, you're always going to like push a little bit. You're always going to embellish maybe just a tiny bit, um, maybe for your own, um, confidence but uh keep it real like and um always scrub your numbers always make sure your numbers are good always make sure your margins are good always make Mm -hmm. sure you're not giving things away unless it's intended for a specific purpose right and then um but have good have know how to work excel like uh (laughs) like (laughs) take a class great practical advice Take 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 a class i mean uh that's you know, great advice, it, honestly. It, it really is. I mean, uh, uh, stay up on your billing. Keep your cash flow. Cash mm. is your permission to stay in business. And mm. if you can't, if you have no cash, then then you have mm. no business. And knowing what you know now, what would you tell your younger self at the start of this journey? Get a job in government. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, you know, I mean, uh, be... Find something you're passionate about. Find, you know, uh, like I, I'm passionate about this. Every every business I start, it, I have to be passionate about it or I, I won't do it. There's no sense in doing it. You know, so I'm passionate about design. I'm passionate about um, figuring things out, but I know that about myself, yeah. you know, and, and I really, I really enjoy it. I, and, mm-hmm. um, and I love people. I love interacting with people. Like, so it's, uh, mm. it's, it's, it's so if you can if you can find what you're good at, what you really love, you know, and for everybody, it's different for everybody. Yeah, there has been so much to unpack here, Chris. Now, last and most importantly, where can people find you, especially for artsmen, if they're interested in looking at what you're doing there? Or they want an NFT. Or if they want to go get a drink at Sinners and Saints. <laughs> yeah. Well, Sinners and Saints is located at... Uh, on Riverside Drive, 2062 Riverside Drive. Uh, so come down, say hi. Uh, it's a, a smokehouse tavern, right? So, Ooh, it's great, um, good. yeah, it's fun. It's a lot of fun. Uh, food's great. Uh, so if you want to find out where we are for basketball, it's artsmansport.com, A-R-T-S-M-A-N-S-P-O-R-T.com. And you can see a lot of our collegiate stuff there. A lot of the uh, NBA stuff that we do, we, we sell it directly to the teams, and the teams will sell it. Uh, through um, different uh, their their own team stores uh, like shopbucks.com, uh, uh, NBA.com, and we're working out. We're trying to work out some larger distribution deals right now, 
with mm-hmm. some of the big players and and we have some really that I'm not allowed to talk about. We have some really really fun programs coming out with like global retailers. Um, global. We're gonna have to bring you back on so you toy, can talk toy about companies. That. Yeah. <laughs> Like one toy company specifically, I'm just like super excited about. Well, Chris, thank you so much. This was amazing. And I hope people really took something away from this. Well, thank you. Thank you guys so much. I mean, it's it's fun to kind of talk about it. And it's fun to like, uh, you know, kind of re-inspires me a little bit. Yeah, it's kind of, it's, yeah, it's it's, uh, it's almost like uh, therapeutic for me, you know. That's why we're here. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. You guys are givers. Yeah, but thank you guys. I am pleasantly surprised because I thought we were just going to be talking about like furniture mm-hmm. and turning, you know, wood into furniture kind of thing, but mm-hmm. it clearly is a lot more than that. So and much more. <laughs> um, I come to realize, you know, it, he, Chris's job is much more like a historian or an archaeologist because he has to look at all this research, understand what significant events have happened on these courts, and he's really telling a story with each of those like sections of the court, and then he is marketing the, that out to the world. So I think that takes a lot of marketing chops, a lot of business chops. To kind of bounce off of what you just said is Chris's business with Artsman is very complex. There are a lot mm. of layers to unpack, and there are a lot of intertwining facets that have to make it that have to work together in order to make it successful. Mm-hmm. And this opportunity is incredible. And his vision and his ability to not only be an entrepreneur, but industrial designer and a craftsman, incorporate his love of food and drink, of course, really <laughs> helps, really allows him to be creative. But at the end of the day, he executes. And it's very difficult what he's doing. But that's what he mentioned was like, you got to execute in the end, right? Make it profitable. Mm -hmm. Make it profitable. Because of all of these facets. Be a business person. And Mm -hmm. I think he gave some really concrete advice for our listeners uh, for starting a business, right? Like he prioritizes his personal life with his family. I think that's like, to me, I think people forget that sometimes when they're just focused on the business. So I like that Mm -hmm. he puts that first and foremost. And, you know, he's still coaching his kids in (laughs) various sports. Um, so, so he has this priority state, but then, you know, he also, uh, is, you know, work built up these partnerships, which are helping him have allowed for greater successes. Yeah. I want to end on the note that I don't know how he sleeps or when he sleeps or where, (laughs) when he finds time Mm -hmm. because getting to know Chris over the last year or two, he truly is one of the most genuine, great guys. I know everything that he does is with good intention. And I can't state that enough. So well, and I think you know he proves it and walks the the talk yeah. uh, with his philanthropic work, and he's he's doing that on top of all of his business work. Yeah, he still first finds time yeah. to give back to the community. And so I think that's a great note to end on, Ali. And uh, you know, on that note. Uh, please feel free to reach out to us at hosts at whenpigsfly.fm or any of our social medias, so LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, uh, just search When Pigs Fly. Uh, We'll be sure to have uh, some of Chris's work uh, probably posted up there sometime here shortly. Uh, And Allie, most importantly, what should they be doing? Tell a friend. If you like this podcast, tell a friend, share it, like Review. Smash that like button. (laughs) And on that note, Allie, cheers. And here's some necessary legal stuff. 
Allie Martin and Patrick Bailey developed the When Pigs Fly podcast in collaboration with the Up Company LLC. At the time of this recording, we do not own equity or any financial interest in the companies which appear on the show unless otherwise indicated. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinions of the EW Scripts company and its affiliates or Generator Management LLC and its affiliates or any entity which employs us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. We have not considered your specific financial situation nor provided any investment or legal advice on the show. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next week. We also want to give a shout out to Claire and Christian of Moonbow. They're the two artists of our intro song, which is so catchy and gets stuck in our heads all the time. So bop over to Spotify or wherever you find your music and give them a listen. And Like the Night by Moonbow is courtesy of Silver Lake Sync. <laughs>